Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast, supported by Zendesk for Startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, in case you haven't heard of us before, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we talk about the biggest stories we've been writing about in the week. And we bring on some of our journalists and some CEOs, founders, investors, people who work in startups to talk about what's going on in their businesses too. This week, we're going to be bringing you our latest reporting on European tech's blockbuster deal of the year as Turkish speedy grocery delivery company Getir finalizes talks to buy its German rival Gorillas. We'll also hear some of the findings from the State of European Tech report from Investor Atomico slash SVB and others. We're also going to be joined by the CEO of one startup that has raised a lot of money, which is Einride, the Swedish self-driving truck company. And we're going to be hearing what our audience thinks about the controversial world of startup accelerators. Are they a fast track to success or a big old waste of time and money? But we have lots to get through. So let's get into our first story. Eleanor, it's been the talk of the town, Gorillas, this German speedy grocery delivery startup that went from nothing to a $3 billion valuation in the space of a year, is being sold to its Turkish rival, Getir. And the longer this deal goes on for, and we've been talking about it for a while now, the less rosy the terms are looking for Gorillas shareholders. So Eleanor, what's, what's the latest twist in the plot? Yeah, so we've known for a while, I guess weeks and maybe in a couple months now that Gittier and Gorillas have talked about an acquisition that seems like they're getting, you know, super, super close to actually putting ink on that document. So we learned more about the terms of that deal this week, which will basically be an all stock deal. So those people that hold shares in Gorillas right now, they're basically going to get shares in Gittier. But in addition to that, there those Gorillas investors are also going to have to inject a further $100 million into the company to get the deal over the line. This is much worse terms than have been previously reported. Previous reports suggested that Gorillas shareholders would get both equity in Gettier and then also get a little bit of cash, right? So they would actually have some payout and some liquidity based on this event. So this all-stock deal would mean that they don't receive any cash right now. And it also means that now the value of that investment is really going to depend on what happens to Getir going forward. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that we've gone from hearing that Getir would give Gorilla's shareholders $100 million to now the Gorilla's shareholders have to give Getir $100 million to get this deal over the line. It shows that if you sit on it for a while, the company that needs to be bought, you know, changes its terms. And why on earth is Getir actually bothering to buy Gorillas? So basically, Getir wants to buy Gorillas because it wants to get a hold of its dark stores. Those are those little warehouses that both Gorillas and Getir and these speedy groceries have in residential areas in, around cities in Europe where they ship the products out from, right? And those are super valuable in places like Paris and Amsterdam, where local governments actually want to prevent any more from opening. And they even want to shut down existing sites, right? So if Getir can get its hands on sites that have already been approved and are already open, those are sites that it can use for itself. For example, just to give an example of how hard it is now to get a hold of these dark stores in the Netherlands, three cities, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and Utrecht, have put a one-year ban on opening new dark stores. And France is currently attempting to make them harder to establish in city centers. 
they're obviously in authorities' bad books because you've got what is essentially a mini warehouse in a small residential area. I have one very close to my house, about 30 seconds away from my house. And you do see the drivers going in and out. There's bikes parked outside. And for places where orders are you know, late at night, that means that there's noise late at night. But Gutierrez tried to get around these regulations in other ways, too. In July, it attempted to open a dark store in Amsterdam that doubled up as an in-person supermarket, but that was actually shut down. So, yeah. Hold on, hold on to your seats on that one. So while some grocery delivery companies are in trouble, there is no shortage of other companies out there that are continuing to raise money for what might be a little bit more sustainable solution than Tenement Grocery. And actually this week, two food delivery startups raised rounds, one a pretty big round, Oda in Norway, and then another one in France. Let's start with Oda, Amy. Yeah, so Oda is this Norwegian online grocery store, which has today announced a 150 million euro funding round at a post money valuation of 350 million euros, which is interestingly, less than half of what it was valued at in the frothy, frothy days of 2021. So it's Oda's been around for a while. It launched in Norway in 2013. And last year, fueled with this fresh funding, it started expanding across Europe. So it launched in Finland, and it is due to expand into Germany by the end of this year. But owing to the new market conditions, it's now chosen to expand at a slower pace and reach profitability in the markets it's currently in. So those three markets before it starts expanding into any further ones. So our colleague Mimi Billing, our Nordics correspondent, she spoke to Oda's founder and CEO Carl Munthakas, and he said it is a natural result of simply having higher interest rates and higher risk premiums. It means that nothing has changed in the curve from the investment phase to profitability, but now the cash has a very different value than it had a year ago, and that's just something you have to accept. He said they were also raising money at what was a pretty bad time because they were already sort of beginning on their expansion plans and you know as we know the markets kind of crashed so here we have just a ceo who's being very realistic and saying hey the situation has changed our business still makes sense it just doesn't make sense anymore to grow it at the pace that we were planning to i like to see a tech founder being honest and transparent about something but the model of Oda is pretty different from Gautier and Gorillas. Why does it seem like this is working a little bit better than what happened with Gorillas? So I actually interviewed the Oda CEO back when they raised their last massive round of funding. And I do think it's a really super interesting business. So it's basically developed what it thinks are the world's most operationally efficient warehouses, which basically means it can process units of food super, super quickly. When I spoke to them in 2021, they were much faster than even Ocado, which is considered to be a leader in the world in this grocery technology, which it now sells to grocery businesses that we've heard of so Oda kind of you can go onto their website and you can buy everything that you'd buy in a normal supermarket so it has a very comparable selection to a big physical supermarket and you can get stuff to come to you on the same day or the next day for a fairly small delivery fee and I guess a key difference with the speedy grocery is that customers spend a lot more money per order and also rather than having these small local warehouses Oda has these much bigger warehouses in a city but not necessarily 15 minutes down the road from where a person lives that are super super operationally 
efficient. So comparable businesses are Mattem in Sweden, Picnic in the Netherlands and Rolik, which is another one which is growing quite fast across Europe, which is from the Czech Republic. And then I guess there was another interesting fundraise this week as well in the grocery space, but much, much smaller, a much younger company. Do you want to talk a little bit about La Tournée? Yeah, so amid all of this, these uh, sort of big online grocers continuing to grow, the speedy grocery delivery companies perhaps starting to phase out. There's also a small wave of startups trying to do a much more sustainable grocery delivery on the same day. So that includes this French startup, La Tournée, which has raised 2 million euros in a pre-seed round this week. And basically what it does is it... It has a circular model where the grocery items that people buy get delivered to them in reusable pots and containers and jars and whatnot. And then the next time that that person orders from La Tournée, they pick up the empty jars, return them to the suppliers. The suppliers then clean them and reuse them, which apparently they can be reused up to 50 times. So it's a way of us all decreasing the amount of plastic and packaging that we use as a result of food shopping. I think it was also interesting about this one, you know, obviously price is also a concern with some of these companies. And when we chatted with the founder of La Tournée, she did say that on some products, they are competitive with major stores like you would have on mass market options. And then on some products, they still are a little bit more expensive. But again, they are competitive on some things. The other interesting thing is that they're mostly just in kind of residential suburban areas west of Paris. So Celine Bujac, who's our sometimes France writer, was a little bit sad when she realized that she actually couldn't use La Tournée because she lives in downtown Paris. So I think it's more trying to leverage those areas where there are a lot of orders and like bulk orders, right? Families living in those areas that is going to make this business model work. Yeah, I'm not very bullish on this because I think if we're going into a recession, people do think about their pockets. So I think unless grocery, as we're seeing with the speedy grocery delivery companies, unless food businesses can match the kind of cheaper high street equivalents, I just don't think there is a big enough market out there of people who care about speed or sustainability when they're struggling to pay their heating bills. Well, I will see you back here again in 12 months and we'll see if we're still talking about groceries, Amy. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software and CRM for six months free of charge. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of like-minded founders and CX leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com sifted. Okay, so now let's zoom out a little and away from food delivery, much as VCs and I love that sector. This week, we had the latest version of Atomico, the big European VC firm's state of European tech report, which has become something of an annual fixture for all of us who work in the startup sector in Europe. But Eleanor, you know about this well, because you used to work at Atomico and work on the magnus opus didn't you so what did it this year tell us about the amount of investment going on in europe as we head into a recession 
This year, we saw that funding is projected to be around 85 billion in European tech as a total, which is obviously down from last year's roughly 100 billion, but still the second highest year on record ever. So still a very, very impressive amount of money. And I think the report also really illustrated the fact that this year has been kind of a year of two years, like very much split in half. So the first half of the year was still pretty firm when it comes to investment, fundraising, all of that stuff. And then things really started to slow down. Down from Q3 in Europe. Um, I felt like, you know, Europe is kind of six months-ish behind what's happening in the US. It also showed that, you know, this is not a surprise to anyone. This is the year that IPOs died. Well, there were 86 IPOs last year in Europe or the US and the US uh, with a market cap of more than 1 billion. There have been just three this year. Although our Reporter Mimi Billing recently wrote an interesting article about some brave startups that are still out there dipping their toes into the public markets. And then obviously it showed that, you know, mega rounds, those huge, huge rounds are far less common. Obviously, that has to do with the fact that the companies that are raising big rounds and are at later stages of their journey are much closer to the public markets. So when they are being judged by investors, investors are comparing their valuations to the valuations of comparable companies on the stock markets. And so obviously, because those tech stocks have fallen on public markets, then that makes it more difficult for those later stage companies trying to raise big rounds. Yep. And then it also looked into what's going on in the fundraising process. So the top lines there are that fundraising is taking longer. So 74% of respondents said that. Startups are also using more bridge rounds. So these are financing rounds that kind of keeps the company going at the same valuation until it raises its next round of funding. So that's a kind of let's just wait and see here's some money to keep going in the meantime type thing and then 82 percent of founders and c-suite startup operators said that raising cash has got harder this year five percent said it got easier i really want to know what businesses they run and why on earth they think that but that is the kind of lowest confidence rating i guess since the data started being collected by tomco in 2018 i would bet that they run defense startups. I thought it was also interesting to look at the kind of the regions as well in the reports. They did a little bit of a deep dive into Ukraine's tech sector, which remains strong, despite the huge hit that the Ukrainian economies, you know, Ukrainian GDP has taken for the war. The country even minted one unicorn, blockchain website builder, unstoppable domains. I think the other kind of Going back to what I said about the year of two halves, right? It's also a year of like two groups of ecosystems. There were a lot of huge ecosystems like the UK and like uh, Germany that grew incredibly fast last year and are really seeing a slowdown. Whereas there are a lot of smaller ecosystems which are still on that journey to maturation that actually are seeing a big increase in funding. And I think that's just due to the fact that they were coming off a low base. And so they're not necessarily going to really have a pullback. I think it's also worth remembering with all of this that just a few mega rounds can really distort a country's numbers and make it seem like things are really, really on the up when perhaps it was just that one company raised a chunky round. And I guess the other thing that we have to mention um, is that the report shows a very unfortunate reality that European tech still sucks at diversity. It's still awful or actually even worse. 87% of all VC funding in Europe is still raised by men-only founding teams. And the proportion of funding raised by women-only teams has dropped from 3% 
in 2018 to just 1%. And just 1% of VC capital in Europe was raised by funds with women-only GPs. Those are general partners, compared to 84% raised by funds with all-male general partner teams. And on top of that, none of Europe's unicorns have an all-female founding team. The biggest raised by a startup with an all-woman founding team was Proximy's 80 million Series C, which we also covered in Sifted. And it's just like awful across the board. Ethnic minority founders also suffered. Just 1.4% of European unicorns are set up by a founding team entirely made of minority ethnic entrepreneurs. And those founders have raised just 0.7% of total unicorn funding. Discrimination is rife. The report includes a survey of startup operators and 40% of people who identify as Black, African, and Caribbean said they'd experienced discrimination in tech and 37% of women said the same. So it's just absolutely dismal. And it's my personal hypothesis that it's going to just get worse as the economy gets worse. Yeah, it's just it's just so damning, this section of the report. Every single year is getting worse despite all of the efforts. Not that I think, you know, <laughs> there's so, so, so many of them, but more attention is being paid to this. And yet that number is still dropping. I don't know what the answer is. I just like to reiterate that this is awful. Worth shedding many tears. So now we are joined by our first guest of the day. That's Robert Falk, the CEO of Enride. Enride was founded in 2016 and it makes electric and driverless trucks. The idea is to make the very polluting industry of freight a bit greener through electrification, as well as fill a big shortage in heavy goods vehicle drivers as people increasingly don't want to work in that profession. And today, Enride has announced a massive investment round of 500 million euros, which is split partly between debt and equity. So Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where in the world are people allowed to drive autonomous trucks at the moment? We are taking a different path to a lot of other players. We don't want to have a general permit everywhere. We always go for a permit from a stretch of road where we see a customer or where we have a business case. We started in 2019 where we got approval. We were first in the world to actually get the approval to go on public road without a driver in the vehicle. And we were also very fortunate to be the first to get that permit in the U.S. as well. I think we beat the rest of the industry to that. So now, right now, we have permits in both Sweden and the U.S., it doesn't mean that we can drive everywhere in either Sweden or US, but it's a big first step. And that's how great transitions are made, not in a giant leap, but a small step forward. And what's your what's your big goal? Is it is it to kind of become one of the biggest freight companies in the world? Will you be selling your technology to some of those classic truck makers? Would you potentially be selling them the electric trucks, how does that look? It's, we are actually the other way around. We are buying them. We are actually, what we are selling is a service to clients that we that want to go sustainable. They're, uh, Lidl and uh, Oatlays and the Meshk of the world, when they are looking to go sustainable, they come to us and we, through our technology platform, we enable that. And uh, in part of that, we are sourcing Charging infrastructure, resourcing uh, trailers, resourcing electric uh, trucks uh, based on our specification and our integrated technology. So for us, that's enabling this transition. 
And Robert, obviously, lots of people might have heard of the Tesla truck. Is it good to be going up and up against Tesla or, or not so fun? I'm just very glad that they are uh, driving the truck manufacturers forward. Tesla has been pioneering electric manufacturing. And I think that we're going to source thousands of trucks for deployment here over the next few years. And we need more companies like Tesla to start manufacturing electric vehicles for deployment. So for us, it's extremely positive. And it's, of course, Tesla is challenging the entire manufacturers. So I think that from my perspective, it's great that they're pushing the prices down and driving at the electrification of the entire industry. And what are the biggest challenges in the way? Why, why can't everything go green in 2023? We need more factories. We need more chargers. We need more trucks. We need, and we need to make the entire system rely on today. We need to change that. That will be a lot of hard work. People that get involved in building the technologies that we are required to make all of this transport we need in a sustainable way. Is it more expensive if I'm Oatly and I work with you? Is is that more expensive than the sort of old-fashioned diesel truck with a driver? It doesn't have to be. And I mean, that's the core. If you want to make and create something better, it's need to be cost-competitive. That's, of course, why there is no sustainability without sustainable business. So that's what we, of course, need to go for. I look forward to seeing one of your trucks on the road in London sometime in the future. Yeah, it's, uh, thank you. And uh, I mean, as a fun fact, we actually got the permit from uh, the Guild of Wagons in London to actually bring it inside of London. So, of course, we have to do that and attend the, the Wagons Parade in London. And uh, would be a great way to introduce it to the UK market as well. Amazing. I look forward to the wagon parade. Now, finally, we're joined by our reporter Kai Nichols-Schwartz about his latest piece of community journalism, where he's been asking the lovely sifted readers what people think of accelerators. Accelerators are a bit of a Marmite thing in the startup world. So they're organizations that promise to help either very young companies or sometimes just individuals to start their company, to grow it and to find funding. But they often also take some equity from the business, which dilutes the founder's ownership. And there's, you know, a bit of a debate about whether these are worth it or not. So Kai, from the people who got back to us in our survey, what are the reasons why those founders are joining Accelerators in the first place? Yeah, well, we heard from 137 founders in the survey and two thirds of them joined so they could make it easier to raise money. And that was by far and away the, the most common response. But nearly half also joined to grow their network. And most of them, I think, joined because they wanted to find that special someone, their co-founder. But a bunch of people said that they just wouldn't have found their co-founder without being on an accelerator. Because as one person said, it's like networking on steroids. So you just got so much opportunity to meet people who are in exactly the same place of life as you. They want to build a startup and they're committed to it. So were people generally quite happy with accelerators it sounds from that little summary like they are well two-thirds two-thirds were fairly happy um fairly happy with the experience and did to some extent find it useful that's not to say that there weren't 
also a lot of bits that they thought could be improved on. But just under a third didn't find the experience useful at all. And mostly that was because people thought that the mentors on the accelerators just didn't have the right experience to help them. One of them said that going on an accelerator was like going back to school, except you knew more than the teachers, which isn't ideal. Pretty damning. And what about the equity that the accelerators asked for? What what seemed to be normal? And do people think that that was a fair amount to give for, you know, sometimes mediocre mentors, but finding that special someone? Just over half of startups handed equity over to the accelerator and 61% gave up 7 to 10%. So that was by far and away the most common amount. And two thirds of people did think that was fair. And the main reason for this was because, well, as one person said, it, it feels like a lot at the time, but because, you know, accelerators are backing companies at such an early stage and because of the value they give in validating your product or helping you find your co-founder, that's actually worthwhile. But about a third of people didn't think that was fair. And I think the main reason for this was because when it comes to kind of moving through the startup journey and going through funding rounds a little bit later on, 7 to 10% can be quite a lot on your cap table when you're trying to entice further investors. And did the people we speak to have any advice for other founders who might be looking uh, to go on an accelerator? You know, what should they look out for when they're choosing one? Because there are hundreds across Europe now. Yeah, you've got to be really, really, I think, picky. And people were saying, you know, you've you've just got to do your your due diligence. Someone said that you've got to spend as much time picking the right accelerators as as you were picking a startup employee. Other people said focus on sector specific accelerators, because obviously in a sector specific accelerator, the mentors are just so much more relevant to what you to what you need to learn. And another one said, guard your equity. So good advice for people there. Thank you very much, Kai. And listeners, if you have any spicy takes on accelerators, horror stories, please get in touch. Amy at sifted.eu. That is all we have time for today. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find our coverage on sifted.eu and you can find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. We also have many, many newsletters. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you want to hear more from the lovely people at Einride or any other Swedish startup, please go on our website, go onto the events tab and check out our Stockholm sessions. This is an event we are hosting on the 8th of March next year in Stockholm with many of the leading startups and investors in the ecosystem. So if you're based over there, if you're based nearby, we would love to see you there. Let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or email hello at sifted.eu. And also please send us your ideas. If you have any ideas for how to make diversity not suck in European tech, we want to hear them. And that's it for today. Bye-bye.